On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, certified financial planner, certified investment management analyst, and co-founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, good to see you, my man. How are you? I'm doing great. I actually took yesterday off, played a little bit of hooky, and took my son out of school, and we went skiing. And oh, I had a great man. time. Okay, wait a, a second. That, that You're in Arizona. How does that work? Exactly. Just what I was about to say is a lot of people that are not in Arizona say, wait a second, it's all golf and cactus and everything. But about two hours from here, Arizona Snow Bowl is sitting on about an 80-inch base right now. We had a fantastic really? time. It's good. Wow. I had no idea. And I actually lived down there for a little while. So that's surprising to me. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Well, you have a guest on your show today. Who'd you bring on? I brought on Jay Shaw. And he's a cardiologist. He's been a number of different places formerly with Mayo Clinic. Now he's chief medical officer for a company called Actia. And I'm going to start with a personal story that I think is probably a good intro to our conversation. So I always have been a guy that's had a white coat syndrome. So if I go in specifically around blood pressure, they put this cuff on me, you get some pretty scary readings sometimes. And this has been regardless hmm. of what kind of shape or condition that I've been. And probably about three years ago, I went to Mayo Clinic, they put the cuff on, it's high. They want to talk to me about medication and I'm not against taking medication, but if I can avoid doing it, I want to. And I said, yeah, let, let's, what's my plan B? And they said, we're going to put a monitor on you for 24 hours and let's see what your blood pressure is doing real time. So I say, okay. So I've got a big, big cuff thing that's strung to my thing, strung to my shoulder. And I'm wearing something that looks essentially like the size of a small purse. And I got to wear this thing for 24 hours. It's inflating, deflating. The good news was, is as it turned out, yeah, I do have white coat syndrome, and uh, most of the day, and particularly through the evening, my blood pressure was totally normal. It just wasn't when I got around the physician. And that's one of the reasons that when this product now that we're going to talk about today is, is released in the US, I'm definitely getting one of these things because we're talking about a small wearable device that can real time throughout the day and almost in, in, in a fashion that you're not going to notice, be able to take your blood pressure and, and let you know what's going on with, hmm. with a really pivotal piece of, of health da data real time. So uh, I'm excited for this conversation today, uh, both because Jay's a friend of mine and I'm excited about what he's doing with this company, but also about having a product like this. And um, the likelihood that many more products like this in the future are going to come in the American market, I think, is a really great thing. So, Jay, thank you for joining me today. And why don't we start by just um, tell me a bit of your background. I mean, I met you when you were at Mayo, but you've got a lot of background in healthcare before that. Sure. Thank you very much, Brent, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here and um, good to see you guys. So, yeah, I have, uh, you know, I'm a cardiologist by training and I've been in practice uh, for over 10 years. I started my journey at the University of Missouri uh, in medical school, and then went to do my internal medicine training at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, um, and then did my cardiology fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis. And then after all that training, I did something quite a bit different, I guess, for an academically trained cardiologist. I went and started my own practice from scratch in Portland, Oregon. So started with two EKG machines and an MA in an office, and that was it. And um, and sort of had to build it from scratch, and which was incredibly enjoyable, rewarding, and an education in and of itself. Um, and I did that for seven years and built it into a very large, busy practice with multiple uh, sites and multiple hospitals. 
Um, and after about seven years of doing that, as well as running the overall larger multi-specialty group of uh, 600 employees and 110 docs, um, I got this opportunity at Mayo Clinic uh, for me and my partner, and we came down to Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And I started their thoracic aortic aneurysm program, which they hadn't had here in Arizona. So for people who have uh, aneurysms or enlargement of their main aorta in their chest, uh, we started a, a center that grew into sort of a nationally known and referral center for uh, people across the country and somewhat across the world. And so that, that's what I've done in terms of clinical and operational aspects in medicine for now over 10 years. And about a year and a half ago, I kind of got the urge to try something different, to see if there's an avenue for me to have a broader impact on the world using my expertise and knowledge in medicine and medical practice and day-to-day -day practice, um, but in a, in a different way to have a much wider and deeper impact. And so I started looking around and, and eventually after about a year of searching and, and a lot of uh, soul searching and informational interviews, found stumbled upon this company called Actia, which is a Swiss startup. Uh, and we'll talk much more about it. And and I didn't know them and just happened to reach out on LinkedIn and they were looking for someone like me and I happened to have the skill set. And it just was, um, it just was, I guess, meant to be. It was the right person at the right time in the right place. And so I came on as the chief medical officer a little over a year ago. And then a few months ago, I've, I've left Mayo Clinic now to go full-time with Actia. And it's been an incredible journey and a, and a really enjoyable one. I've, I've loved and don't regret at all uh, the decision uh, so far, at least, <laughs> to leave clinical practice. And um, I've really enjoyed it and I've, I've learned and, and am learning every day so much. And so I've really, uh, I think I've really um, just sort of found that that avenue for for delivering sort of my uh, knowledge to a much wider and broader impact in a in a way that I can feel passionate about every day. I think what's really cool is that you know your road through medicine has been has been kind of different because you basically, like you said, you opened your own shop, so you had an idea what it was like to be a small businessman. Then you go to a monster like Mayo yeah. Clinic, you know, massive, massive organization, <laughs> yeah. multiple sites, and now you're heading into a startup world. Um, I guess uh, I, I don't want to take us too off base here, but what are the biggest lessons you think you got from each of those channels? Well, I think that's I think that's true that it is a different pathway than than I think most physicians are kind of used to and and the traditional pathways in medicine. And I think one thing that I I have just sort of learned over at each transition, there's been some you know, significant growth opportunity that wasn't clearly, you know, wasn't clearly perceived. I didn't clearly perceive it even before I took that opportunity. So for example, you know, when, when I went for, from fellowship at cardi uh, in cardiology at Washington university, which is a 1100 bed hospital with, you know, millions of patient visits per year across their whole enterprise to literally three exam rooms and, an, and, and one person with two EKG machines. And as you said, sort of a small business owner, I mean, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I knew that it was something different and I knew that it was exciting and I knew I would learn something or a lot of things from it. And as it turned out, it was incredibly rewarding in so many different ways that I would have never thought about before. Or I never could have expected before. And in a way, it was a risk, or at least all my mentors and people who I was used to and, and my sort of peers perceived it as a risk. In fact, that's that, that's sort of the feedback I got. They really, 
they were like, what are you doing? That that's that sounds very strange. Why would you do that? And, and I think that, that that has played out again in several ways. Again, leaving from Mayo Clinic to go to a, a startup company. Again, similar ideas, similar sort of themes is that uh, questioning, like, why are you leaving? Why, why would you leave Mayo Clinic um, and all the benefits that, that it has to work it to, you know, to working at Mayo Clinic. But I think in every case, at least for me personally, there's been such a incremental, or I would say actually not incremental, but an exponential amount of growth that has happened with each one of those transitions that I know, at least for me personally, those are the right kind of choices for me. Those are the right, you know, leaps to take. And as risky as they might seem, I think the reward on the other side is, you know, multiples of that risk. Um, and I'm very fortunate and lucky to have a, a, a very supportive partner, obviously, that's, that's been trusting enough for me to, for, to do these things. But I think, I think that's really the main thing that I've gotten out of it. The main message is that for me personally, just to never stop learning, to never stop growing and to try those, you know, to take those risks or seeming risks and just bet on yourself more than anything else. Absolutely. I think that anytime you can get outside of that box, because, you know, in, in almost all areas of life, years can go by and also you look yeah. around and you realize that there's a whole entire world out there that you have no idea what's happening because you're, you're just in your thing. So I, I, I really, you know, it, it's an incredible, incredible story to be able to, to be able to, again, make those big decisions and continue to move forward. So one, why, one thing I can add to that Brent, yeah, is please. that, you know, in, in the culture of medicine, there is a, there is a inertia to, to moving outside of traditional boxes, right? We go through, you know, four years of college, four years of medical school, three to eight years of subspecialty training, and you become this expert, which means you're extremely good at something very fairly narrow. And so it there is a lot of inertia once you've gone through that process and this sort of almost lifetime or half of lifetime of career of training, uh, of sort of a sense of what am I, what did I do that for? Or aren't you giving that up in some way? But the truth is actually the opposite. And so while there's a lot of fear around that and there's a lot of inertia in the medical community, what I've started telling my counterparts who, who ask me how this transition has been and what have I thought about along their, along this pathway is more and more physicians contemplate leaving medicine and sort of under trying to understand what's on the other side. I think that, you know, that those sort of growth opportunities that are just not there in the practice, daily practice of medicine, you know, far outweigh those fears and those risks. And really, it isn't some, it isn't a concept of you're leaving all your training behind and, and it was all for nothing. Actually, you're building on it. You're taking all that training and then you're, and then you're looking at it and using it in a much different way and a highly valuable way. And, and truthfully, in industry, there are actually very few you know, people who have had, who do daily practice, who have lived day in and day out, what it means to be on call on weekends, nighttime, you know, to, to, to sort of have, go through the ups and downs of clinical practice and the real difficulties. And it's a really valuable perspective that I think is missing a lot of times from the sort of leaders in health tech, you know, med tech, you know, healthcare in general. Um, so it's an important thing to remember as a physician is, that I think we need to be more a part of that leadership conversation. Well, I, yeah, yeah, and I think in terms of what we're going to see happening, and I look at the utilization of technology that's coming in all areas, for sure in medicine, for sure in my business, and we're we haven't even seen it 
yet <laughs> in terms right. of what's coming in the next in the next this years if not sooner mm-hmm. than that and 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 to have people that that have the clinical experience like you have actually dealing with patients having done those like you said being on call all the hours and the time and the energy you put in also being part of now bringing some of these products to the marketplace i think is hugely valuable to to pretty much everybody so why cardiology why did you get into cardiology to begin with you know that's a that's a good question i don't i'm not sure i have like a an amazing answer to it but truthfully i you know i i always enjoyed cardiology in medical school just because largely there are there are clear reasons for why things happen like it's it's pretty well figured out unlike some other specialties where there, there's still a lot of uncertainty about why certain underlying disorders occur cardiology has fairly well spelled out underlying physiology and pathology which means that the treatments that are directed towards those um, underlying events whether they're a blockage in an artery or congestive heart failure or an arrhythmia and actually do help. So there's there's a both a sense of an understanding of the disease that you're working with, as well as an understanding of how to treat it. And there are lots of good treatments. So that was one part. The other part was I really enjoyed knowing people. I, I enjoyed no, getting to know patients. So I really looked for some specialty that allowed me to see a patient and then follow them over a long period of time. So, you know, other specialties where you see person one time do a surgery or see them in the ER, those didn't really appeal to me because I never really got to know the people. I really enjoyed getting to know people. And especially in my practice in Oregon, that was, you know, time and time again, proven to me. So I got to know their families. I was their sort of community doctor, you know, they, they came to me, they talked, they, the first questions to me were always about me and my family, not about their, you know, medical issues. And it really was a very rewarding sort of experience. And I think those are the two main things that drew me to cardiology, because you can do a lot of those, you can do a lot of great things, treatment of medicine, but within the concept of, you know, being somebody's sort of um, long-term partner in their health. Yeah. Now, and to correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, heart disease, number one killer in the United States, correct? In the world. In the world. Okay. Why? <laughs> that's yeah, a big question, but that's a big question. But I think there's there's several there's several main reasons. So first of all, communicable diseases used to be the largest, the biggest killer in the world, meaning like things like malaria, infectious disease, you know, um, all across the world. In the developed countries, it started to become more the diseases of the rich, so to speak, though of of excess. Um, and so as we went through the industrial revolution and as a as an entire population started to move less to drive more to eat more to have extremely calorie rich uh, calorie dense foods and so obesity um you know really started to becoming a pre- extreme prevalence in certainly the United States as well as across the western world then that brings along with it disease, chronic non-communicable diseases. So high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, all the things that come with obesity and that then lead to the underlying, the you know, the end result, which is heart attacks, stroke, car, you know, congestive heart failure, kidney disease. These are all diseases that generally result from excess, excess sodium, excess food, excess calorie, excess driving, not enough walking, not enough activity, not enough exercise. But the rest of the world is not immune to this. So the United States certainly is the most common, but in every continent except Africa right now, non-communicable diseases are the number one uh, cause of mortality and morbidity in the world. And cardiovascular diseases is the top of that list. And in Africa, they will surpass 
non-communicable diseases will surpass communicable diseases as the number one cause of death in 2030. So not very long, far from now, even in Africa. Um, and so it's just the way the world has, has you know, the, the sort of, I would say, collateral damage of progress, right? We have progress in a lot of different ways. Industrial revolution has come up with all these technologies, all these things that have made our life better and easier in a lot of ways. But the collateral of that is that it has taken away some of our ability to be to have healthier lifestyles and healthier habits. And in the end result is this overwhelming burden of, of cardiovascular disease and other you know, related disorders. Now, specifically around blood pressure, why is that important? Why is it important to, to have that under control or lower? Yeah. So blood pressure, what people often talk about high blood pressure or hypertension as a risk factor, even physicians are kind of guilty of that, but it's actually both a disease and a risk factor. And what's the difference? So a disease is actually some disorder of an underlying organ or organ system. And in high blood pressure or hypertension, there's an abnormal constriction or stiffening of the vessels throughout the body. And that is actually a disease of the vessels. It is a disease of the cardiovascular system. Something has changed in the underlying uh, physiology that leads to this higher pressures or higher stiffness, which leads to higher pressure in the arteries. That's the disease. The risk factor is that the disease itself, the higher pressure in the arteries, doesn't cause any immediate problems. You can live for long periods of time with high blood pressure and not know it. You don't even feel it. Most, most, the vast majority of us with high blood pressure don't feel it at all, have no symptoms. But what happens is that slowly over time, over years and decades, that higher pressure in the arteries, when it hits the organs, the brain, the eyes, the kidneys, the heart, um, it, it starts to do significant damage of the underlying organs that are not built for this higher pressure of blood coming into it. And so over time, it does its damage. That's real, And so that's why it's called the silent killer, because it's silent and it does its damage over long periods of time. And people generally don't even realize that they have a significant problem until decades after it has you know, started and many times decades after it has really started to do its damage. And then some major event occurs like a stroke happens where there's lack of blood flow to the brain for some reason, or kidneys start to fail, or the heart starts to fail, or there's a heart attack. That then triggers them to understand or start to understand that, look, there's been this problem all along that just wasn't well managed. And now it has led to this secondary problem. And so that's really why you know, hypertension, that's how, how it works and why it does its damage and, you know, causes, you know, it's a number one cause, um, risk factor for death in the world. And it's the world's most common chronic condition. I have a question for you. Have you heard of a guy named Wim Hof? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I just finished his book and what he had said in this is he was talking about, he's the ice man for people that don't know he's, he's run marathons up in the Arctic in a pair of shorts and no shoes and things like that. But, but as I read it, what kind of made sense to me, and tell me if, if he's wrong or if I'm wrong on this, is he mentioned that your cardiovascular system has 60,000 miles of, of arteries, blood vessels, capillaries, which is, I mean, it's an enormous, enormous system. And much like you were talking about, we've got these, we've got these diseases, these disorders of affluence. And one of the things he said is, you know what, as human beings, it's probably 72 in my office right now. It's very comfortable. I get my car, there's AC, there's heat at night and here in the desert when it does get cold in the wintertime. 
And your body is never having to adapt to these extreme temperature changes. And so what, what his theory was anyway, is that by having these, these hot, cold plunges, everything else, you're constricting and opening up this other 60,000 miles of your cardiovascular system, which then is pulling some of the stress off your heart. Is, is, it made sense to me, but is it, what do you think? Is there anything to that? You know, I don't know if there's any specific research. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, anecdotal you know, um, talk about sort of that hot, cold, you know, when people do the ice plunges or the ice baths and then sort of going from hot to cold about how there's some health benefits to it. I don't know if there's specific research around it. Mm-hmm. What I, what I would say is that the ability of the blood vessels to react, meaning dilate and constrict, dilate and constrict is part of the underlying problem of, of hypertension and overall cardiovascular disease. Okay. So if there is some evidence there that I'm either not aware of, or maybe hasn't been done or hasn't been proven. But if that does occur, we know that other sort of inputs into that distensibility or reactiveness of, of the vessels can be beneficial, primarily driven by this sort of compound called nitric oxide. So, you know, more nitric oxide makes vessels more resilient to change and they'll be able to flex and constrict a little bit better or significantly better. And so if there is any underlying truth to this theory, it probably has to do with that, you know, that, that reactivity. Uh, and I think there are other ways to think about that in terms of long-term, when we see that from a pharmacologic standpoint with medications or other types of interventions, like just sort of routine, significant exercise, that's what is changing with the, our, it's, it's the, it's the um, constriction and relaxation in a much more significant way of the arteries and the small arteries in particular. Now let's talk about acquiring this data because one of the things I think is really cool is is I'm a numbers and a data guy, a data guy. and uh, nighttime I got a couple of sleep trackers that I wear and what what's really interesting is that I have an aura ring I wear a Garmin sometimes depending on the, depending on how much what kind of data I want but you can really see how different decisions that you've made in the evening like radically impact the quality and and the duration of your sleep. I mean, heart rate variance and which I still don't understand by the way. So since I have you here as a captive <laughs> audience, you can, you can tell me what that is, but if you have a cocktail at night or a couple, yeah. what that does, even if you slept the same amount of time, what that does to the quality of your sleep, when you actually see it and see it in the date is unbelievable. So, so, so give me an idea. And what, what, what I am excited about your, your, your uh, product that you have coming out here is I do want to see what my, what my blood pressure is doing uh, throughout the day. Cause when I, when I wore that giant holster, which is ridiculously mm-hmm. uncomfortable, the thing was inflating, mm-hmm. deflating, doing all this stuff during the day. When I got the data a couple of days later, it was really cool to see it. You know, you could see spikes in, in di- at different points of the day. And I knew what I was doing. You could see at night and you know how, how it reacted when I came home at night and you fell asleep and all this other stuff. So, so give me an idea in terms of what, what that does for, for both individuals and also the medical practitioners that are helping them to get a full picture of the data. Yeah. Describe to me what, particularly around blood pressure. So I think the first thing to understand is, is that generally speaking, physicians, healthcare organizations who manage hypertension or manage blood pressure, which the vast majority of, of which is done by primary care physicians, by 85%, the rest was by specialists. The vast majority of hypertension management is done in an almost complete absence of data, almost completely. And here's, here's an example. So, and this is a very common example. So even at Mayo Clinic, they're doing the clinic with thoracic aortic aneurysms. So they have a life-threatening condition and the primary input of whether that aneurysm grows faster is their blood pressure. 
and 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 looking at that data and making sure we understand it. And even there, it is exceedingly difficult to get people to monitor their blood pressure at home routinely. And that has to do just with the cumbersome nature of a home blood pressure cuff, having to sit in a defined position, put it in a certain way. You can't talk, you can't eat, you have to be quiet, you have to rest for five minutes. You know, there's all kinds of restrictions around it. And so it's a very maybe false sort of just snapshot of a blood pressure at one point in time. You don't really know what happens the rest of the time. Even that ambulatory blood pressure monitor that you wore, which by the way, is very infrequently used in most in most of the country. In fact, if you look at um, Medicare reported usage of ambulatory blood pressure monitors, of all the people who would qualify for use of ambulatory blood pressure monitors, the average rate of use was less than 0.5%. Why is that? What do you think? It's because of partly the reason you talked about. It's extremely cumbersome. It's extremely bulky. And also there's a significant um, uh, uh, incent- disincentive to use it. It doesn't reimburse hardly at all. Okay. Um, so, so there's no incentive for you know, physicians or organizations to take the time and energy to provide it, to maintain them, to look at the data. They're, essentially, it's done for free or almost for free. So there's, there's all kinds of things we can talk about, about why healthcare is a disincentive for, for these things. But, but that's the reality. And so... Mm-hmm. Even if you look at home blood pressure cuffs, which are on every street corner and every Walgreens and every you know drugstore in America that are not that expensive, um, the average use of a home blood pr- pressure cuff is pitiful. In people who have hypertension, the um, only twenty four percent of people monitor their blood pressure more than once a week. Wow. Fifty fifty one percent of people never check their blood pressure, and they have hypertension. So, basically, the point is is that blood pressure management of blood pressure is done in an almost complete absence of data. That's the first part. So then to get to your question is, well, how, you know, wouldn't more data be more helpful? And of course the answer is generally speaking, yes. And so basically what you would, what you do with this kind of device is basically, you know, you'll be able to see your blood pressure patterns and trends over time. You'd be able to really understand you know, what it is from day to day, week to week, month to month, and you really get very granular details about your blood pressure. Conversely, though, there is a flip side to that. And that is a that we don't want every single data point, right? I mean, our Actia system provides. So our system, you know, at Actia, we, we have a very easy to wear bracelet. And what you get from it is about 20 to 30 blood pressure measurements a day, about 190 to 200 a week, and about 800 a month if you wear it continuously. And you say, well, how much of that data is actually important? And what aspects of that data are important? Is every minute important? Is every time, every single measurement important? Or what's more important is the trends over time. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's pretty much the the latter part that is important for physiology, for clinical decision-making, to understand if someone has hypertension. One data point at one time, like with what you get with a blood pressure cuff, is almost meaningless. You really can't make any clear decisions or understanding of what is your blood pressure because your blood pressure continuously fluctuates throughout the days, nights, weekends, and months. 
So what we do is we take all these measurements, but then we compile it into really actionable and sort of concise metrics. So when, when we display that data for, for people, we get a daily average. You'll see the trend, you'll see the individual measurements, but really what's more important is what is the average during the day? What is the average during the week? And you get those patterns, it's like you were talking about, that relate to sort of lifestyle, alcohol, sleep, all those other things. You'll be able to see patterns that emerge that when you, let's say somebody does dry January and they stop drinking significant alcohol, is there a different pattern that is clear to see? We can demonstrate that very easily without wearing some big bulky device that you know, is very difficult to use. And you can see those trends, you can see those changes. Someone undergoes a significant exercise, um, you know, starts a significant exercise program. And part of it is they wanna see some positive reinforcement so that they can continue the behavior, right? So you can see those good behaviors show up in your blood pressure trends, or you start a diet, or you look at, you know, you lose weight. All these things are sort of positive reinforcements, which for something like high blood pressure are so critical because there is no physical sign or symptom that you can see or feel, right? You can't see or feel or your blood pressure getting better or worse. And, and so we have to kind of create those feedback loops to people to reinforce the good behaviors and disincentivize the bad behaviors. And that's a lot of what that that data allows us to do. It allows us to empower people to understand what their actions do to their underlying physiology. Now I'm going to ask you some loaded questions about the data itself, because I know that uh, people are concerned that you've got all this, all this very personal health data that's being harvested Mm -hmm. and, and and, uh, staying somewhere. And if you look at my car insurance, for example, if I Mm -hmm. get a number of speeding tickets, accidents, it goes up. Uh, If I apply for life insurance policy, I get the physical done. I'm, you're in great shape. You get a better rate. It's, just, it's that simple. Health insurance seems to be like that's one of those issues that, that people are incredibly nervous that there can be almost ranges of, of coverage for that. Now, what you're doing is if you look at the data from, from uh, some of these various health trackers, just even in terms of a basic one, tracking mm-hmm. steps, there's going to be health outcomes that are correlated with that. Mm-hmm. Tell me, and I know there's HIPAA and everything else, but but what's uh, what are some of the steps that are being taken at least to try to protect some of the, that data. But also if I was an insurance company, I'd want to also use it in a way that made sense for the, for the company. It's, it's a real, it's a real tricky area. Yeah. yeah it's kind of a double-edged sword. There are, there are pros and cons on each side of it. So on the first part, which is um, security of the data and privacy. So there are strict requirements by all regulatory bodies and all healthcare organizations. First of all, you have to be HIPAA compliant. Then there's even on top of that, there are layers of even higher, uh, more stringent levels of compliance in Europe. There's something called GDPR, which is one of the most stringent uh, levels of data compliance. And how we've architected the system is that we store no personal health information at all on our on our end. The servers are it's completely de-identified. You cannot under, know, you know who's who based if someone's just looking at the server. The only place that personal health information is stored is on in that person's own device. Okay, so it um, does not go to a centralized place. It it the it does bounce the signals. The signals from the device do get bounced to our our servers for analysis, but right. as soon as they leave that person's device, they're completely de-identified. Got it. And then it returns back and then it's re-identified. And same thing for the the interface on the healthcare side. They have identified data, but we don't store it. 
So there's layers of protection there that are by requirement. And we do a lot of work and continue to do a lot of work to stay ahead of that. So that's that part of the sort of answer. Then there's other answers, which is, as you said, you know, wouldn't insurance companies be, you know, would want to see that their that their users, that their covered lives are, are healthier. So for example, in Europe, where we've been commercial now for 18 months, we have uh, two large deployments of large health insurance companies that are starting to use our system for that exact purpose. So what they do is they set up a sort of a telemedicine arm of their uh, of their business. And so of the patients that they insure, of the people that they insure who have hypertension, they enroll them into that into that um, sort of program. They provided our device and our system. And so they are monitoring and managing those patients' hypertensions proactively on an ongoing basis because they know that they'll eventually, you know, uh, recoup the benefit of that in terms of cost savings in the future. So there is benefits there, I think, but that is usually driven on the side of the payer side, the payer itself, the insurance company itself wants to do that kind of uh, program. And then they set it up. We don't, we don't sell data to anyone. We are not going to sell someone's data to anyone else. That is not at all in our you know mission or business to, to do that. So, so tell me in terms of the product here, hopefully it's going to be in the United States very soon, 18 months in Europe. How's it going? How, how's, how are things going in Europe right now? That's going great. So, I mean, it's uh, we have about thirty thousand active users, growing at about three thousand per month. You know, to the point where it's difficult to keep up with the demand um, in the markets that we're in already, and we've had to ramp that up in anticipation of U.S. market launch as well. So, we're seeing incredible traction on the direct to consumer side or the, the direct to over the counter, you know, sort of sales. And in terms of the enterprise sales, as I mentioned, the two um, two large insurance companies are already using this on their on their uh and their groups and we're having significant um traction now with uh, healthcare organizations that want to deploy a largely remote hypertension program across large you know populations or large groups of their patients so it's i mean it's it's okay. going you know very well and and the more the more data and the more we publish on it based on these studies and based on these um you know trials it's just it's going to snowball and so, so your device is using an optical sensor, correct? That's correct. It, 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 to the extent that you can that you can talk about this, is it different than say an optical sensor inside an Apple Watch or a Garmin or something, or is it? Or are you, you are you taking the same optical data and kind of running it through your algorithm or something? Correct. The IP is all in the algorithm predominantly. Okay. The sensors here are not anything proprietary or that complicated. It's but a high quality, but fairly standard optical chips, optical sensors, and LED light set. That's done on purpose because, you know, in the future, and I can't talk too much of the details about this, but in the future, probably now, uh, I guess we will we will basically not have to, you know, we will be able to allow our software to run on other third-party wearables. And so converting them into a true medical grade uh, device, which currently really consumer wearables are not because of our software and algorithm. So yeah, and that was so it was purposely done that way. We do not want to make proprietary hardware. Well, and the thing is then too is you can you can hop on to essentially anyone else's hardware and, and the ability to distribute it across way bigger exactly. channels. It sort of becomes like a distribution channel for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's yeah. exciting. So chief medical officer, what are you doing? What's your day to day like when <laughs> yeah. you're working with a startup as a chief medical officer? It's kind of different every day, which is exciting. But, you know, and one of the great things about being part of a startup is you get to 
touched so many parts of the business uh, versus if you if I was sort of in a in a medical role at a large strategic, you know, gigantic multinational corporation, you'd be very much in staying in a certain lane. But chief medical officer at Actia, I have significant role in the commercial side of the business, talking to you know prospective customers and explaining the use cases um, across their particular businesses and the value proposition, product development, sort of routinely in the product meetings and and sort of um, shepherding the product, uh, you know, along the lines of what would be clinically useful and clinically the most um, uh, sort of best decisions uh, to make or to take with the product. Regulatory quality, you know, you know, handling large parts of the regulatory submissions and and um, and crafting the strategy around that, and uh, research and development. Um, sort of, you know, taking taking the system in, into research organizations, working with primary um, principal investigators, publishing data on on our device and our you know medical grade capabilities, and so all of those things. So it's it's an incredibly diverse role, um, and I and also includes sort of investor relations. You know, at least helping our CEO and leadership team, uh, you know, go through the processes of fundraising as well. So it really involves a a, a number of different avenues or aspects. And, and to, again, for me has been an incredible education and I continue to learn every day and which is, which is great. And so I really enjoyed all of those aspects of it. So you mentioned fundraising, fundraising environment has changed dramatically uh, in the last, you know, really 24 months or so. Um, how has that impacted your team? Yeah. Well, it has, it has changed dramatically uh, for all the reasons that generally people who are aware of the private and public markets probably know. But the, but the difference is, so we did a Series A raise a little over 18 months ago uh, that closed. And so, and we're actively in the process of our Series B right now. The difference is not so much that there isn't money. There's actually a tremendous amount of capital um, that's available for deployment. Um, I think a lot of organizations and investors have tightened up significantly in in terms of not so much what they would invest in but the valuations so i think probably that's been the that's been the the i think that's going to be the trickier part is arriving at um evaluation now versus 18 months ago would probably be a significant delta there that's not to say that it's not a, I mean, it's important, but as long as it allows us to continue to grow the business and gives us uh, fresh capital for, you know, further investments, and as long as we stay really disciplined with our approach and stay extremely lean, which is generally our 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 principle, I think we'll, we're well positioned to to grow the business into the future, and certainly after the FDA decision, and and that's really where we're positioning ourselves um, for the for this fundraise. Well, I think what's pretty amazing is you can go back and look at, at the private markets and the companies that are undergoing significant growth or launching in the wake of some of these financial dislocations end up being absolutely yeah. monsters you know, relative yeah. to the companies that, that were launched when money was free and everybody could do whatever they wanted. I mean, they if they're coming up in an environment where they've got to tell a great story, because yeah. there's always money out there. I mean, there's always money. And as you said, there's enormous pools of money out there just waiting to invest. But you're right, valuations are being compressed right now. Yeah, but, but I um, think, it, like you said, Brian, is that it's it just, 
you, you just the, the rigor that you have to stand up to as a company is higher and that bar is higher. So I think in a way, as we get through it, I think it'll actually make us stronger. Absolutely. Make us a, a, a better, you know, more well positioned. And I agree that the other companies that get through, some will fall away because they, they can't stand up to the scrutiny and others that do will, I think, are better positioned for the for their future growth. Now, you came from an environment with physician leadership. And so Mayo Clinic, to those of you know, those of you obviously familiar with the name, but there is a physician, each department has a physician head, and then there's also administrative head. So there's a physician leadership throughout the entire organization. Now you're coming to Atia here in the startup world. You obviously are a physician in a, in a, in a position of leadership. How about the rest of the company? And, and give me an idea why you think it's important to have physician leadership uh, in this space. Yeah. So, I mean, for Actia, I'm the, at this point, the only physician in the company. Um, you know, it's largely built by engineers, software teams, software developers. And now we're getting more sort of management layers on top of that. And, and, and so I think there is just, I think it's a credit to the leadership and to the board that they went out and recruited a chief medical officer so early in their process. It's very rare to see a chief medical officer in a series A company. Um, that just generally doesn't happen. In fact, there are many digital health companies that don't even have a chief medical officer at all. Okay. And, and I think that that, and even biopharma, and I think that that is, that's oftentimes why perhaps they sometimes they might struggle because not because I do something dramatically different to the overall, you know, sort of strategy, but you have a different perspective when you have real medical experience sitting in the room and, and it really shifts the conversation to where the market truly is, to where the gaps are. What are the real problems that need to be solved? Not some perceived problems or not some problem that is a very tech-focused uh, solution. So, and I think that's really where Actia excels is that we have this technology, which is proprietary. It is unique. It is one of a kind. It is sort of um, defining its own category. But that's actually not how we look at it. We don't look at it as a technology. We look at it as a data solution for a disease, for a real underlying so to really impact the people. And we talk about it all the time internally. Our North Star, our mission is to help 100 million people with hypertension have a better outcome. That's our primary endpoint. It's not to sell devices. It's not to sell software. It's not to, it's about, in the end of the day, it's about the people. That's why our founders started the company. And that's why, there's such a focus on on real you know solutions in healthcare. So I think that's really why a physician voice is so critical in these types of you know entrepreneurial um, endeavors or startups or initiatives, because it really guides the the team in the direction where the problems actually lie to solve real world solutions. And I think that's such an opportunity for physicians who are looking to do something different and maybe have that spark or want to try something that's perhaps a little bit more, uh, well, quite different than clinical practice is that they need your input. They need our perspective. They're really kind of desperate for it. And there isn't, there is a sort of a lack of it in, in the overall environment. And I think that's, that sort of reinforces, you know, how important that physician leadership is, um, or physician input really is in all these decisions. So I think that's, you know, that's what I've seen over, over this last year, year plus. So in this device, we're close to launching here in the United States. What's it going to cost? 
So in Europe, right now, the retail price over the counter is about $219 US. Yeah. So it's going to be probably roughly the same, you know, in initially. And that and that's a one-time price. At this point, there's not like a subscription fee. It's a one-time. You get the device, you get an, you get the whole system, you get the all the hardware that's required, and you get the software and the app. So what does it cost, um, whether it's Mayo or any of the big hospitals, to treat somebody with, with bad chronic hypertension? So, you know, that's that's a good question, but I'll tell you that it, I can't boil it down to an individual hospital basis, but I can tell you what it costs the, you know, healthcare system yeah. generally. And it's about uh, in the U.S., it's somewhere between 200 to $250 billion uh, cost of untreated hypertension. In the world, it's probably close to $400 billion. And um, the thing that makes it difficult is that there's not, you can count heart attacks, you can count strokes, you can count death, you can count heart failure, but it's difficult to count exactly how much hypertension has had a role in all of those. Right. So there have been many studies that have estimated that hypertension causes, directly causes about 18 million deaths per year. That's by the WHO. And the direct impact to overall healthcare costs in the US, 200 to 250 billion, when the world is close to 400 billion. So that's that's a general answer that I could probably say. You know, I think I, one of the things that's so exciting about where we're going with a lot of this wearable technology is you're really, I, I'm all about individual individual empowerment and you're really empowering individuals. They can choose to use the, use the data or not, but you're empowering them to make some decisions about their own life and actually see real time what the outcome of different decisions are. And, um, and I do think this is such a cool thing. And to the extent that, you know, one guy who's, a dad with three or four kids running around who says, you know what, eh, maybe I should think about this. Maybe I shouldn't and straps this thing on and then gets enough of a call to action in his own life to make the meaningful changes. I mean, you saved an entire family with that. And I'm not trying to be, um, you know, over the top here in terms of, in terms of the praise for it, but I think it's, I think it's really real. And I look at this country and, um, you know, my wife works for Mayo, as you know, thank God for Mayo clinic. I'm grateful for them. But I think that that uh, medicine throughout the entire West, if I get run down by a truck, I want Western medicine to repair me and fix me up. Um, I also think Western medicine is really good at providing band-aids that don't do much about recognizing or solving an, an, an underlying problem. And, and to the extent that people can um, empower themselves maybe to, to take a harder look at different aspects of their life, I think is a wonderful thing. So very excited about this, about this product. And uh, I am absolutely will be <laughs> i'll be a guinea pig for you when we're launched here in the united states but jay before we, we, we wrap it up and again i know you're real busy and and uh really appreciate the time you've taken and, and the candidness course, with your answers you. in this conversation any final closing thoughts in terms of uh anything you'd like to add to our discussion how can people find you find find actia find the product buy the product uh what yeah would you like so to share with i would just like to you know tag on to your last comment that you're 100 right is that modern quote unquote medicine is exceedingly designed for re to be reactive. It's designed to react to some problem that, it, that has occurred today. It is really not designed in any way to prevent that problem 20 years before or 10 years before. And I think that's really where we are starting to see something shift in the culture of healthcare overall to kind of push people to really look at that preventive side. But I do think you're 100% right in that the individual person has to be, I think, the the, the 
the driver of that. Mm-hmm. And that's really, as we, as you said, is that we're, that's really what we try to do is empower those individuals, empower each other, empower ourselves. We're all going to be patients one day and, and empower ourselves to really make those actionable changes and, and using the data that we get. I think if anyone wants to learn more about Actia, just go to our website. It's the easiest place to go. Actia.com, A-K-T-I-I-A.com. We have a, um, a place you can sign up for updates uh, as as we get closer to U.S. market launch, and that'll get you on our mailing list, and and you can see all the updates as well as all our publications and how the device and system work. It's all it's all right there. Awesome. And uh, if anyone wants to reach you personally, yeah, if you want to reach me personally, you can go there. Uh, same thing on the website. Um, it's it's you, there's a, a way to to ask to to kind of contact us if there's any inquiries about on the medical side or healthcare providers or, um, and, and, or, you know, any sort of partnership or our opportunities, there's a, there's a contact us form and that'll come straight to us and it'll get to the right person in the team. Excellent. Jay, again, thank you so much. And, and uh, this is a great conversation. Thank you so much, Brent. really appreciate your time. Jay, I just want to echo what Brent said. I, I am so excited. I mean, I didn't know what this conversation was going to be. And um, my wife has struggled with high blood pressure. And so it's, it's, she's fairly healthy. As long as your little device tells her she can still cook homemade tortillas, we're fine. <laughs> um, because that's, that's her only vice is the homemade tortillas. But uh, I mean, this is something that as a husband, I've been worried about, right? I, I want her to sit down relax for a little bit. She's always busy. And so hopefully this will give her an insight. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the launch. I'll be one of the first in line. Sounds like I'll be right behind Brent. Uh, so I'm excited. Thank you so much for this, Brent. Thank you for bringing on another amazing guest for not only myself, of course, but for the listening audience. Um, you're amazing. If people want to reach out to you and and maybe they can uh, get some advice from you to lower their blood pressure, just you know, <laughs> we're getting their finances in order. Uh, you know, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. Number here is uh, 602-255-0555. I uh, would love to speak with anybody about anything we talked about today or anything else that's on your mind. And um, also very active on LinkedIn. So you can yeah. just search me on LinkedIn and we post a lot of content up there. And our website is smartmoneysimplified.com or mpadvisorsaz.com. And a lot of info about uh, our group there as well. Fantastic. Gentlemen, again, thank you so much. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this actually helps others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. 
Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.